Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. The tech world loves a good, disruptive big idea. Apple's Steve Jobs put a computer in the palm of your hand. SpaceX's Elon Musk wants to send the first people to Mars. Grace Hopper said in the 1980s that our computers were the equivalent of the Model T, the beginning of something much, much bigger. Big ideas are American. They're how we look at the world's problems and say, hey, don't sweat it. We got this. We're going to fix it. Let's roll. So S. Matthew Liao's idea, when you think about it, shouldn't sound that wacky. But it does. It sounds real wacky. My personal favorite is something called cat eyes. Matt wants to engineer humans so that we can see as well as cats do. Cats can see just as well as we can during the day. Yeah. But they can see about seven times better than we can at night. He says developing a way to give humans cat eyes could eliminate our need for lighting. This could totally affect our consumption of energy. I mean, think of that. Like, who wouldn't want to have better, be able to see better and see just as well during the day? Yeah, who wouldn't want that? Well, if you don't love the idea of cat-like night vision, then you'll probably hate Matthew's other human engineering ideas. Pharmacological induction of empathy. A pill to make us more empathetic. Have smaller children. Screening our embryos so we have shorter people. Number three is sort of uh, cognitive enhancements. A procedure to make us smarter. And the fourth one is pharmacological induction of meat intolerance. Creating an allergy to meat. Uh Uh-huh. Matthew is a bioethicist at New York University, and he has a reason for throwing out ideas that even he admits can sound crazy. He's trying to solve what is likely the greatest problem humanity has ever faced. The big one. Climate change. Climate change is one of the biggest problems that we face today. Climate change. The fact that humanity's ingenuity and engineering prowess has had such a global impact, we might need to turn to tech. We might need to engage in what I would call world building just to keep the planet we got, or at least have the planet keep us around. We have the technology. Can we rebuild the world with smart, empathetic, cat-eyed, meat-resistant hobbit people? On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology by asking straightforward questions with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes a sense of dread. This season, we've got one question in mind, four little words. The answer isn't so simple. Oh, jeez. Uh, oh. Uh, well. <laughs> I hope so. Can it save us? We are asking this question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today, world building. A set of stories about using technology to help us fight and survive the impacts of climate change by building a new world. One where our batteries are cheaper and better than ever, where a NASA scientist's idea about technology a half century old could give us power for millennia. And oh yeah, one where Bill Nye goes ballistic. What do you mean? Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. Let's get this done. So, world building. Can it save us? Don't forget there's a special code in every episode, so listen closely. This is probably a good time to say that if you are a climate change skeptic, a person who, despite the almost complete consensus of the vast, super smart scientific community, thinks that the idea of humans changing the climate is poppycock, this is probably not the Codebreaker episode for you. 
I'm just saying. You can look at the death of the Great Barrier Reef, or just the fact that 2015 was the hottest year on record since we got a sense of Earth's mean surface temperature around 1850. The top 10 warmest years since we have been recording have all happened since 2000. The last photo of a sickly-looking polar bear I saw made me want to punch stuff, and I'm a pacifist. What we know is that it's going to get weird. What we don't know is how weird, how fast, and what exactly is going to help us get out of this spot. The XPRIZE Foundation is a nonprofit that gives away tens of millions of dollars in competitions for developing technology that could benefit mankind. Paul Bungie is the head of the Environment and Energy Prizes at the XPRIZE Foundation. Hi, Ben. It's great to talk to you today. He is in the business of Can It Save Us? He is a part of an organization that is trying to incentivize people to solve the planet's biggest problem by giving them millions of dollars. But here's my problem with his idea. Technology got us into this mess. Yeah, I mean, in a sense, that's right. Uh, you know, we, we uh, th- this is, at its very base, it's climate change is caused primarily by the burning of fossil fuels, right? The, what we use for our energy. Uh, and so that, you know, yeah, the, the sort of technologies that did amazing things in the Industrial Revolution uh, come with not just a downside, but a, a catastrophic downside, potentially. So what's interesting about this is that you and I both agree, and yet you are the head of part of an organization that also believes that innovation and technology can lead us out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah, I don't think, I, I guess I don't think it is a paradox. And, I, and, and I'll tell you why, I guess. Technology is a human construct, right? When we've been doing this since we domesticated animals or, or wheat uh, and rice and such, right? Those are all sort of technological innovations. Yep. And those, including the Industrial Revolution and including the discovery of, of this amazingly concentrated energy in the form of fossil fuels, have enabled uh, not just a better life, but exponentially better lives. Bungie hopes that even though technology got us into this pickle, it can get us out. A big, new tech solution might do it. What if I told you that a big, old solution might do it? One that held a lot of promise, but got abandoned. It's called a molten salt reactor, and it uses a chemical element called thorium, Thorium sounds like something from the planet Krypton, but it's not. It's from here. It's like the red-headed stepsister of uranium, which was chosen over thorium decades ago and used by America because it served our needs for both regular nuclear power and geopolitical power in the form of nuclear weapons. Dave Mosier has been looking at molten salt reactors. He's a science and tech correspondent at Business Insider. So this is a story about energy and a totally different way of doing energy than we've done it for the past 60 years, 70 years. years, yeah. And it starts with, like, a forgotten book on a bookshelf. That's right. What happened here? So a guy named Kirk Sorensen, who is a NASA engineer, he was asked to figure out how to power a human colony on another planet or moon. And he looked high and low uh, with his colleagues in Huntsville, Alabama at Marshall Space Flight Center. And they were kind of stumped. This is like the, the, the exact kind of theoretical question that you imagine NASA engineers like this standing, is like around. The, standing around talking about. In yeah. a doorway yeah. talking about. Yeah. And so Kirk looks over on the bookshelf of his colleague and sees a book called Fluid Fuel Reactors. 
And in that book, it described this very detailed, very extensive experiment done in the Cold War through the 60s up until about 1971 about a, a reactor that doesn't use solid fuel like our reactors today, but uses a molten salt fluid fuel that carries around the radioactive material inside of it. And that's where the reaction happens, not in a bar in some reactor core, but in a fluid. What does molten salt look like? Molten Have you seen it? Do, is there? Does it exist? Are we? Um, I've seen it on YouTube. <laughs> does uh, it? Does it look delicious? It looks. Can I get put it on steak? What's? The, um, if you put it on your steak, it'd probably explode because it's hundreds and hundreds of degrees. Okay. To to melt salt, like even table salt, you have to heat it up to excruciating temperatures. You definitely wouldn't want to gaze upon this type of salt because it's made of stuff that, as uh, one scientist told me, is carcinogenic. But if you can keep it contained, it's great stuff. It can dissolve your radioactive fuel, make the reaction more efficient, use more of it up than a solid fuel reactor. So Kirk is really passionate about the promise of this technology. This is how he feels about it. Every time I run my lawnmower, I think, well, we'll probably be using fossil fuels for things like this for a long time. I do think, though, that it has the potential to replace nearly all large-scale energy generation from, from fossil fuel. It's reliable. It's clean. It, it basically does everything fossil fuel does today, and then it does a whole bunch of things it doesn't do today, like makes energy without emitting carbon. So I think it has the potential to be the true replacement for for fossil fuel. And that reliability that it has is so important. You've got to be able to generate energy reliably. You've got to be able to generate energy on demand. And that's what wind and solar can't do. With nuclear technology, specifically thorium, we can do that. So if you pulled all the thorium out of the crust, you could power a human civilization of about 7 billion people at today's standards for 30 billion years. That's long enough for me. <laughs> so if it's so great, where's my thorium reactor? Can I get one? <laughs> well, uh, maybe. Here's Kirk's answer to that. Well, for the longest time, I thought that good ideas always got developed. But in my career, which has been mostly spent in technology development, I've learned that uh, the opposite is actually true. Most of the time, good ideas languish. And only through dedicated and commitment and committed effort are you able to see a, a new technology brought to fruition. The problem of the thorium reactor is not that the technology was poor. It's that at different times along the, the course of of its development, starting in about 1944 to the present, uh, there were times when the, the defenders just kind of went to zero. It's these kind of engineering challenges that really stand in the way. That's the real roadblock here. It's not the science. The science is easy. It's all those niggling little details that are going to get in the way of this technology. And the money that you need to get through all of those details and see how stuff works in real life, not just on paper. So this isn't a completely new idea. It's been in the works for a while. What has changed? <sighs> this is... <laughs> Deep sigh. This is, uh, there's so many answers to this question. That's why I sighed. It's like all of them want to come out, but I don't know which one to pick first. Yeah. One, the climate. We are expanding and expanding our use of fossil fuels. We have to find alternatives or we are facing some serious problems in the future. Another is that we know, we know that the commercial nuclear reactors we have today aren't the best design. We know there are better designs. We just have to, we just have to make them. 
We, we can make designs that you can walk away from and they will not melt down. They will not release radioactive materials. You can't do that with today's reactors. You know, the reason, to, the reason we're looking into this today is because we need it. We know we need it. We know it's a better idea. It's one of many better ideas. So we, we have to figure out if we can do it, if it works. Dave Mosier is a science and technology correspondent for Business Insider. Dave, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Stick with us for a minute. We'll be right back. So what happens if we destroy Earth? What's our plan B? Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Uranus, Neptune, Saturn? Realistically, we don't have a plan B. But a lot of people are thinking about this and coming up with ideas big and small. One of the ways we know the climate is changing is big data. Sensors all over the world gathering information and crunching that information with new computing power. In fact, a lot of the world's most powerful computers spend a lot of their time doing what's called climate and weather modeling. Supercomputers also do what's called ocean modeling. Those sensors are deployed everywhere. For a story about that, we'll hear from Marketplace producer Catherine Girardot. The Scripps Institution of Oceanography sits just above a classic Southern California beach. You know, sand, surf, waving palm trees. So it's no surprise that the open concrete breezeway of the Vaughn Hall Science Building has a rack full of surfboards, sleek wooden longboards, fiberglass shortboards in neon green and hot pink. Researcher Tyler Cyrenak chooses his ride. It doesn't matter what kind of board you ride, as long as you can put the fin on it, you can collect data. But you probably get better data if your board stays mostly in the water, right? Well, you want the fin to stay in the water. <laughs> but if your surfboard's not in the water, you're doing something wrong, I think. <laughs> Tyler is both a surfer and a scientist, and he's testing out a new product, the smart fin, a surfboard fin which collects data on the ocean. It's loaded with sensors to measure things like salinity, pH, and ocean temperature. The smart fin is made of white fiberglass with a gentle curve like a dolphin's dorsal fin and fits onto a surfboard where a regular fin would go. It turns out that surfboards may be one of the best ways to gather ocean data in the surf zone. Waves breaking everywhere, there's lots of sand moving. So you can imagine putting a traditional sensor out there, it can get covered in sand, you might not ever find it again. Tyler says the data collected here could help us understand how climate change will affect the coast. And that's crucial to Dr. Andrew Stern, the guy who came up with the SmartFin concept. My dream is that SmartFin could help us predict and prepare for what climate change is bringing but also maybe, maybe, maybe make the tiniest dent in creating a truly meaningful response to the threats of climate change that are coming. The retired neurologist founded an environmental nonprofit, the Lost Bird Project, to start new conversations about climate change. He came up with the idea for the smart fin through a series of chance encounters. I spoke to an oceanographer by chance and he said, you know, you should talk to surfers. They are intimate with the oceans in an intimate physical way. And then I ran into a surfer engineer who had built a sensor to measure the flex and the performance of a surfboard. And I said, can you make a chemical sensor in a fin? He said, sure. 
Here we are four years and 30 engineers later, we have a SmartFin. Back in Vaughn Hall, we meet up with SmartFin calibration tech, Catherine Cat Hammond. She screws a SmartFin into her wooden shortboard and waxes it up. She and Tyler turn on their fins with the swipe of a magnet. So right now it's actually trying to find a GPS and then it'll start blinking green, which means that the, the fins are recording. They head out to the beach about 200 yards from their lab to gather some data. You want to go surfing with us? Yeah, I wish I could. You don't really need lessons to go surfing. Yeah, you don't. So you can go be a surfing citizen scientist all in one go. Yeah, well, these guys make it look easy. They paddle out into the turquoise green water just past the end of the Scripps Pier. There are already about 10 surfers out there. Pretty soon, I see flashes of Kat's pink wetsuit and Tyler standing tall. They come back about half an hour later. Hey, Tyler, how was it out there? It was pretty good. Uh, it was super fun out. It's even more fun when you're collecting data. Absolutely. I feel like a human buoy just floating there. Yeah. <laughs> floating for science. Floating for science. Tyler and Kat are part of a team of about five researchers who have been using the SmartFin since May. They're still in beta, but come January, Tyler plans to run an ocean research project with 30 SmartFins. We're going to put the fin on the charger and download the data. You can actually see the data online now. Tyler scrolls through a smartphone app with temperature charts and graphs and maps of each location. He says the beta test is already yielding some new information that wasn't available before. And you can see these huge drops in temperature that happen about on the six hour frequency. And what's really interesting is you actually see it in the surf zone as well, so the smart fins are picking it up. Tyler says SmartFin has all the elements of a successful citizen science project. Making data collection easy and cheap was key to SmartFin founder Andrew Stern. What is unique about the technology is it's tiny, so it fits in a surfboard. Most ocean sensing equipment is gigantic and very expensive. A SmartFin costs $200. But he says you won't be able to go out and buy one at a surf shop. He's planning to pay for the fins through private donations and research grants and distribute them for free, but only to members of the Surfrider Foundation, an ocean protection network. Why did you make that decision? Wouldn't it seem that making this as widely available as possible would gather even more and better data? It is very important to me that SmartFin always be presented in the context of environmental awareness. He's also adamant that SmartFin will not do fitness tracking. Even though our technology would be fantastic at doing that, we'll do none of it. This project is not about the individual. It is about community. So what surfers as citizen scientists are doing is contributing to our community knowledge about ocean health. Surfers have a built-in incentive to research climate change. The sport they love requires healthy oceans and coasts. Sea level rise, ocean warming, and acidification could wipe out some of the world's best surfing destinations. So these surfer scientists are pretty determined to find a balance between catching waves and ocean data 
and spending time on dry land in their labs, trying to figure out what it all means before it's too late. That story from Marketplace producer Catherine Girardot. Carrie Pine is thinking about the idea of self-reliance and resilience in the face of climate change. To get it, though, I needed some paper and a pencil. So I'm drawing this out right now. I'm, dra- <laughs> um, I'm, yeah. I'm basically drawing like what looks like a big sun. Those are the little houses and the sun is the middle, right? That's right. Carrie's assistant professor of mechanical engineering at Vanderbilt University. And he's also focused on small-scale solutions that might make a big change. So he's breaking it down for me. So if you were going to describe the world that you want to create, the world that you want to live in, help me, help me draw that picture. So everybody has a little sun in their own home. Carrie's plan is about one of our biggest problems when it comes to our energy consumption, storage. You know, originally when we started this project, our goal was, you know, let's take the opposite route of the research crowd. You know, the research crowd, you know, they make great batteries from very precise materials, really nasty chemicals. Gotten in really nasty parts of the world, or at least gotten in nasty ways sometimes. Yeah, and you have to wear protective gear and all this stuff to work with it, right? So, I mean, the goal is, you know, let's actually kind of go against that. Let's start with steel. Nature just doesn't give you materials that are matched up well. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we look down the list of just cheap junk that's in scrapyards. Some of it is actually worth a lot of money, but actually it turns out that brass is, is one of the ones that has an electrode pairing that gives a reasonable voltage. And, and so that was our other choice. And so we put that together. This is the first time that anybody's ever put those two materials together in a battery. You basically want to, to make a battery that in some ways can, it, it can be sourced from a junkyard and it's something that the end user or the regular person could potentially make for themselves. That's right. And, and it's not just that we're focused on the user. We're focused on the innovation. Batteries can solve a lot of problems. And right now, the battery market is mostly focused on electronics. But actually, when you start looking at renewable energy and grid-scale storage, this becomes challenging because if I'm going to sell a consumer a battery to put out back behind their their house, it has to be very cheap. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. And with the way our markets work, it's really hard to find an investor to essentially invest in something that has a large upfront hardware cost, like a manufacturing facility for grid-scale storage, but then has a very, very low profit margin where you need everyone in the world to buy one. Who's the battery for? This battery is something that's going to go behind your house. So this is a grid-scale battery. When you say grid-scale, what does that mean? It's a stationary battery that you put behind your house and you couple it with a solar cell. Essentially what you're saying is if you could store better the energy, then everybody could use the energy whenever they want it, then it wouldn't be such a, a, a drain on this overall system. That's pretty much right. I mean, the challenge is, of course, that we can't predict when a cloud is going to go overhead in a community. Right. You know, photovoltaics and solar cells give you on-demand power. The bottleneck right now is, well, you know, where are the cheap batteries? You know, you can't, you can't buy them in the store. And, and for the cases that you can, like lead-acid batteries, I personally wouldn't want to stick a lead-acid battery behind my house with my, my infant and my sure. toddler hanging around. The way to get past that is to basically build, you know, your own system. 
that would be a huge transition of the way that the economy around power works right now, right? That's basically yeah, taking that would. The, that would it would take the power of power out of the hands of uh, the grid operator and the utility and put it into the hands of the regular resident. That's right. But, you know, when you think 50 years down the line, what's the other option we have? I don't know. I mean, at, <laughs> at, some, point we, at some point we run out of these resources that yeah. we're using to power the world. You have kids? I do have kids. I have two kids. I have a six, six-week-old little boy uh, who's keeping us up at night right now. <laughs> Are you trying to save them? You know, at some point, the out- outcome is that, right? At some point, you know, if, if, if we make something so important that it impacts the world, that ultimately, yeah, it comes to that. But I think it's, it's not just them. It's, it's just you look at the way that we're doing this right now and you say, well, gosh, you would think that some of the smart people who work in this field realize how unsustainable the story is right now. This could be a controversial idea. It could be a little bit of crazy. But sometimes I think you need a little bit of crazy if you're going to do something really important. Dr. Kerry Pint, he's Assistant Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Vanderbilt University. Kerry, thank you very much. Thank you. Here we are again. Back to this idea that climate change is about some of the humans that will come after us, our progeny, kids that we hope will inherit the earth and make it better. So let's get back to the bioethicist, S. Matthew Liao, and his ideas about engineering humans. Because engineering humans is a way to flip the script on some of the other wacky ideas that are being considered right now. So when, when someone says bioethicist, I basically picture someone sitting in a lab, like looking at a skull, alas, poor your, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know anything about what you do during the day. So can you tell me? Sure. Uh, so uh, bioethicists look at bio, uh, sort of uh, ethical issues arising out of biology. Mm-hmm. So my special area is looking at novel technologies. So things like embryonic stem cell research, okay. cloning, genetic engineering, okay. designing humans. This this proposal, this specific proposal that you're you're here to to tell me about. <laughs> tell me about it. Okay, sure. So uh, uh, so the uh, it's about hum- human engineering and climate change. So yeah. climate change is one of the biggest problems that we face today. Uh, millions could suffer hunger, diseases, uh, f- food and water shortage as a result of, of climate change. Yeah, People have been trying to solve this problem, and but it doesn't seem like we have a readily available solution to the problem. So p- some people say, you know, we need to um, change our behavior. We need to sort of drive less and recycle more. But that doesn't seem to have much effect. Other people think that we should do uh, market solutions. Or geoengineering. Uh, that, that's right, or geoengineering. And the, the thing with geoengineering is that, uh, so things like spraying sulfate aerosols into the ozone layer or fertilizing the ocean with iron. Sure. The problem with uh, geoengineering is that it's very risky. We only have one planet. But so we have plenty of people, so you want to start tinkering with the people. That's right. That's right. So one of the things I wanted to suggest was, well, there's a whole class of solutions that we haven't considered, biomedical modifications of human beings so that they can better adapt or mitigate the effects of climate change. Neither you or I are a tall man. <laughs> um, and this is part of your solution. Yes, 
Tell, yeah. tell me more. You want Sh- people to be shorter, everyone? Yeah. Well, uh, as I, many people as, as possible. As many as possible. So okay. think of, think of, so, you know, taller people on the average use a lot more energy. They need to have more clothes, right? Like more fabric to clothe them, yeah. right? Uh, and it takes more energy to transport them, yeah. right? And th- add all that up. So your, your idea here in this paper that you put out with these other co-authors, your idea here is make people shorter, uh, make it really hard for them to eat meat. What else? Uh, and also uh, make them smarter. Make them smarter. Yeah. So it turns out that um, when you're smarter, uh, it, when there's sort of there's sort of evidence that people uh, with cognitive enhancement, uh, people on the people who are more educated tend to have uh, fewer children, right? And so if you increase the the people's uh, cognitive abilities, it may be that they want to do a bunch of other things besides having, you know, like besides having children. These are weird solutions. <laughs> if you came to me and mm-hmm. said, we're going to make your kids smarter, uh-huh. I would say, great. <laughs> and then you were like, but we're also going to make them super short uh-huh. and they can't eat uh, 30% of the diet that most people eat. Right. I would be like, get out. <laughs> right? Right, right. So... How do you think that this could work? The the area that we're going for is something called win-win solutions, okay. right? So win-win solution, a clear example is cognitive enhancement. You just said that, you know, if you come to me and say, you know, I want to make my child smarter, I would totally do it, right? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, whether it has an effect on the climate or not, you'll do it, right? That's yeah. a really good thing. So that's what we want. We want win-win solutions where you don't feel like you have to sacrifice something. Right. And, uh, okay, now let's talk about uh, height, right? Yeah. Because Maybe I want my kid to be a basketball yeah, player. Right, good, good, good. So if you want your child to be a basketball, I mean, you know, we can talk about that. But so now I think our society does have a bias towards having taller people. They yeah. tend to get better jobs, right? They tend to get more mates, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I, But I think that part of that is uh, – I mean, again, you know, uh, I think that we need to reflect on that. Like, how tall do we need to be? Do we need to be seven feet tall or eight feet tall? Is part of the conversation that you're trying to start here um, a conversation that's already happening? I mean, we're we're already talking about bioengineering humans, right? And so you you want some of these particular traits to be introduced to that conversation. Yeah, so it's not so much, this is, I, I, it's actually one step removed from that. I'm not suggesting that any of these things should be implemented. So my question is kind of a philosophical, rhetorical one. Why right. shouldn't we be considering it? Right. Yeah. W- what does it say about climate change that we're willing to turn to such drastic ideas or consider them? That it's a really big problem and we don't have a solution yet. Right. I mean, it may turn out that biomedical engineering is not the best way to go about it. Maybe carbon taxation. Maybe we just have to tax people through the roof. But it doesn't seem like that's working very well. I mean, you know, good luck trying to get There's some resistance to that (laughs) as well. There's a huge reason. Yeah, exactly. And so um, and so I think we just need to get creative because scientists are telling us that we're almost beyond we're probably beyond the point of no return already. And so if we really seriously care about uh, the climate and, you know, our children's future, we got to think about something. And so this is sort of, I'm trying to come to the table and sort of say, look, here's a whole class of solutions that we haven't even thought of, right? Mm -hmm. And let's think about, maybe you don't like these particular ones, maybe you can come up with better ones, but it seems like we should be thinking about them. You say say that part of the question you're asking here is rhetorical, Mm -hmm. right? Um, 
But do you believe that this is a, a real solution, what you're describing in this paper? Do you believe it's a real solution that can potentially save humanity from climate change? Um, I do, actually. I think that— um, Really? Uh, I, yes, yes. I do think that—I mean, I think it could. I mean, I don't know if it will, right? So that's an empirical question. We haven't done it yet, so I don't know if it will. S. Matthew Liao is director of the Center for Bioethics at NYU. Thanks for coming by. Thank you for having me. That was really fun. All right, we've heard a bunch of crazy ideas, ideas that just might work or not. Technology probably helped get us into this mess, but with the help of science, maybe we will get ourselves out of it. Can building our world anew with technology and science save us? For an answer, we called up one more science guy, the science guy, Bill Nye. Bill Nye, thank you very much for talking to me. Uh, it's great to be spoken with. <laughs> so so I didn't know this until just recently, but your mother was a, a code breaker. Yeah, she uh, wouldn't talk about it. They were declassified in 1992. Okay. My mom went to Goucher College. Dean of students at Goucher was Dorothy Stimson, who was the first cousin of Henry Stimson, who was the Secretary of War. Oh, wow. He apparently said to Dorothy Stimson, do you have any women that can come work on this thing? I can't tell you what it is. So my mom and several other gals from her graduating class of 1942 were recruited to work on the Enigma Code. Wow. Okay, so let me shift gears with you a little bit and talk about climate. You've been thinking and talking about climate change and the sort of wise and wacky solutions we might use to deal with it for, for decades now. Well, the word wacky, uh, wacky. The trouble with people like me, I'm an engineer. Yeah. I became an engineer because I'm a tinkerer. Yeah. I like to tink. <laughs> Uh, is we think that there's a technical solution to virtually any problem. and But that's not bad. It's a feature. It's a, right. So it's not I, a bug. It's a feature. Right. That's right. And so uh, there's three things I want for everyone in the world. We want clean water for everyone. We want renewably produced, reliable electricity for everyone. Uh-huh. And we want access to information to the World Wide Web for everyone on Earth. And that's going to require a technology that generally exists but hasn't been applied on a global scale. So how do we get there? Let's talk about molten salt reactors. Oh, okay, molten salt reactors. Everybody, I'm all for it. Okay, whatever. You're all for it? And I, I mean, I'm dismissive generally because nobody wants nuclear power. It may be the greatest thing in the world. It may be fabulous, wonderful. Yeah. But nobody wants it. Hmm. It takes decades to license a nuclear power plant. Right. How about batteries? Let's talk batteries. Having batteries at everybody's house that are reliable is a fantastic idea. Now, in the engineering community that where we're concerned about a renewable future, yeah. We want people to only use electric vehicles. This is a very difficult challenge, but it could be done. Mm. And I'll prove it to you. Okay. When my grandfather went into World War I, he was on a horse. But 20 years later, 
Nobody was on a horse right. two decades later. Nobody. So we could change everything. All right. So, so if no idea is wacky, let's talk about human engineering. Because uh, I don't know how tall you are, but... Um, I used to be six feet tall. Yeah. How tall are you now? I'm 5'11 and something because yeah. of man and his gravity <laughs> crushing me down. Gravity he's, crushing me. He's making me. you shorter. It does. As you get older, you get shorter. So, but what if we engineered humans from the beginning to make them shorter, to make them consume less meat and make them smarter? Could we, could we take that kind of, instead of trying to geoengineer our climate, could we bioengineer ourselves to make less of an impact, to make us shorter? We use up less fabric. We, I mean, what, what do you think? No, no. Yeah. I don't know how much you know about people, but they love to have sex. They're crazy for it. <laughs> So there are 7 billion, 7.5 billion people in the world. Soon there'll be yeah. 9 or even 10 billion people. There's no way yeah. you're going to top down influence people to be shorter. Yeah. I, I got to be honest. You, The conversation thus far, you've been bumming me out because you're, you're skeptical. What do you mean? Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this done. So how do we get it done? I mean, what what is going to save us? Is technological innovation going to save us from climate change? There's no one thing. We have to work the problem from both ends. And what I mean is we we have the technical solutions. We could power the United States. Indeed, we could power the whole world renewably right now if we just decided to do it. There is enough wind, there's enough solar energy, enough geothermal energy, enough tidal energy to run the whole world without extraordinary innovations in electrical storage if we just decided to do it. Yeah. Let's make renewable, reliable electricity for everyone in the world, clean water for everyone in the world, and access to the internet for every, or whatever the future manifestation of information technology is for everyone in the world. We are humans on the earth facing a problem. Let's get her done. Bill Nye, the science guy, thank you very much for, for your passion and for, for talking to us. Thank you, guys. Let's change the world. All right. By the way, if you want access to all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait for them to come out. You do have to find the code hidden in this episode, though. Something was missing from this episode. Do you know what? Once you get it, you can input it at the website codebreaker.codes. Our show is produced by Claire Tennisgetter. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Our engineer, Jake Gorski. We got production support from Adrian Ma and Marketplace tech producer Stephanie Hughes. Marketplace's executive producer is Sitara Nieves. Deborah Clark is Marketplace's vice president. Our theme music is by Mux Mool. Our show is made in partnership with the nice folks at Tech Insider and their robot overlord, Dan Bobkoff. Get updated on their stories and much more at businessinsider.com. Just don't believe what they say about us. Could be a little bit of crazy, but sometimes I think you need a little bit of crazy if you're going to do something really important. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM. APM.